0: We're back to being a normal country. We're back to being a country.
1: The British
2: Dream podcast. Join us, powerful people, as we launch our despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics.
0: What I hate about this up is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you.
1: Hi, we're back. Thanks for joining the British Dream Vice UK's Politics Podcast. We're going to keep this monthly for the moment, at least until someone calls another election. My name's Simon Childs. I'm Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. Today we have here Angus Harrison. All right. Sam Wilson. Easy. And Sharon Kale. Hey. Since the surprise election result, the news cycle went into overdrive. There's so too much to talk about, really, but today we're going to chat Brexit BS, the Grenfell Tower fire, Corbyn mania. But first, he's actually in charge.
3: Strong and stable. That's allow!
1: Try to calm down.
4: Hey, oh and
1: behave like an adult. Jeremy Corbyn's the Prime Minister, apparently, except he's not, obviously. Theresa May is seemingly unable to deal with being the Prime Minister, while Corbyn's been jumping in two-footed. Austerity is ending, but that's mainly in the form of a £1 billion SOP to Northern Ireland after the election he's actually in charge of britain it's sort of like power sharing isn't it like
0: corbyn does all the leadership stuff like has rallies and appears at important moments and comforts people and Theresa may gets on with dismantling social care it's a strange coalition yeah it's a very weird coalition i mean i think in a normal in normal times uh this would be a lot more apparent because the job of a government is to pass legislation and uh, the Conservatives can't get basically anything passed uh, because of the tiny size of their majority, because of the DUP, because of Labour being a real threat. But this isn't a normal time and the main thing that this parliament is going to be doing now, according to Theresa May, is dealing with Brexit, which was kind of always what was going to happen. It's very hard for Labour to kind of, change what David Davis is doing on a day-to-day basis in Brexit negotiations and so even though it feels like the Tories lost the election and it feels like Jeremy Corbyn's you know become he's outflanking Theresa May in all the polls and he's a more popular leader now actually if you look at who is like making these decisions in Europe making these decisions in the negotiations it's Tories everywhere there's there's no DUP, there's no Labour, there's no Lib Dems it's just the Tories you know kind of deciding the country's future on this really weak mandate Yeah, on this really weak mandate, because of our political system, it's not even like the coalition where you had Lib Dems in every ministry and Lib Dem ministers and all of this kind of thing. It's just still the Tories across the board. And so it's a kind of weird scenario in which it feels like Theresa May is kind of hanging on by a thread, but no one's going to challenge her because no one wants this horrible burden of leading the Tory party right now and leading the country and so she could, she could very well kind of trundle on.
1: And there's this real sort of disconnect between the kind of general good vibes after the election of, hey maybe we can actually change things and then the fact that the government is just like this horrible, unpopular That I'm like not so on. sure
0: about because it feels like the good vibes are there, like I see a lot of people uh, going to a rally to try and uh, defeat Boris Johnson in his constituency at the next general election whenever that may be which i actually think is great politicking because it really would put pressure on on johnson you know in if there was a leadership contest that would then become an issue of whether he would even survive the election so i think that actually the enthusiasm and stuff is all there but i just wonder if it's a little bit misplaced because it's not actually creating a lot of change in terms of power or or brexit or the direction of, of negotiations.
4: I do think you're focusing on Brexit there quite a lot. Like if you actually do look at the concessions and things that have been dropped from what was in that that doomsday manifesto the Conservatives actually ran the election on. I think you can say that there's been a power shift.
3: It's looking like there might be a bit of a U-turn on student loan interest repayments as well. So right. that's kind of been indicated that it might be happening in the next couple of days. Um, interest rate repayments on student loans were going to go up like massively and I think that the Tories are just really keen not to be seen to be like totally out of touch with the zeitgeist considering how much student loans were so important to the Corbyn campaign
0: Even those things that they floated like a U-turn on student loans or a U-turn on uh, the public sector pay freeze they've then peddled back almost as soon as they've even suggested it I think they're very split within the party I mean it's all a question of like did Corbyn do better than expected because people really bought into the Labour manifesto or did Corbyn Do better than expected because Theresa May's shit. And I think there's a real big disagreement in the Conservative Party, and that affects how they think Conservative policy should be.
4: But I think that disagreement within the Conservative Party is. The, is a sign of the power that's shifted. Like, right, that's kind of the power that Corbyn currently holds, as he's kind of thrown them into disarray. And suddenly like Boris Johnson's talking about, like, raising wages for nurses and stuff like that, which is kind of this for a
0: second. And then, but yeah, and for like one day. Two minutes later, he was like, "No, we must agree with Philip Hammond." I mean, Philip Hammond is now bizarrely—he's gone from kind of like the the sort of liberal hero in the Conservative Party to like the Thatcherite doomsayer, saying, "No, we can't be spending any more money. We need to stick with austerity." I mean, his He's, he, every, he's kind of everyone's hopes and dreams are just pinned to his sort of grey, fortuitous mess no one quite knows what he is but like they're just willing for him to be represent yeah. something
4: I think he's weirdly managed to like dark horse, slip like slip through the net and become like one of the strongest, suddenly the strongest presence in the Conservative Party basically because he doesn't really say that much and he doesn't change his mind a lot, which seems like the main thing with the Conservative Party at the moment is, like, if you change your mind loads, then you're shit. But if you basically don't say very much and have, like, the same line, then you kind of, you suddenly look
1: like a good leader. But, I mean, the fact that they're even having these discussions is surely, like, a sign of a massive shift. I mean, talking about the public sector pay cap, which I think is really sort of instructive, austerity wasn't really up for discussion at all before the election, or at least certainly before May, like that's one of the things she's screwed up on is she's allowed it to be a political question and she's hinted that maybe you could spend more money in certain ways and Jeremy Corbyn looked like slightly kind of left field for for saying that it's a political choice and now it's like absolutely a political choice, even within the Conservative Party.
3: The one major shift that we've seen in the last month is that we've basically seen an end to this idea that austerity is the only approach and that we have to, we have to proceed with austerity no matter what now people are starting to look at this like narrative and challenge it a little bit more and I think that that's actually signified like quite quite a major political shift if you looked at like what what we were saying three or four years ago there was no question amongst the Tories that austerity is the only way forward yeah. and now the Tories are coming out with all this kind of empathetic stuff about you know listening to people's pain and all of these things
1: I think they, they you know they could have For whatever, they wouldn't have done it, but for whatever reason, if they gave Northern Ireland a billion pounds like two years ago, they would have been able to sort of somehow present that as some necessary thing within the context of austerity, which is still not really negotiable. But now they're they're doing that for obvious political reasons to like prop up their government and people are seeing it for what it is immediately and going, well, hang on, if you can do a billion pounds there why can't you, you know, pay nurses more or whatever?
3: I think the thing is as well though with the Northern Ireland thing is that, yeah, we all hate the DUP, but in and of itself giving a billion pounds to Northern Ireland is not actually maybe a bad thing. Sure. You know, like I think Northern Ireland's been pretty much ignored by a lot of people in mainland Britain for a really long time. Like, for example, a lot of social care policies that were introduced under a Labour government were not introduced in Northern Ireland. So, you know, and when you look at abortion access as well. So I don't think that actually we should be like super, super down on that. It's more the hypocrisy of them talking about this magic money tree that like doesn't exist and then suddenly discovering it a couple of weeks after the election
0: it really was one of the tory's strongest attack lines in the 2010 election that you don't want to vote for labor and end up with the SNP pulling the strings they tried it again in the 2015 election with the coalition of chaos and now that this has happened and it's gone through in the most sort of sordid backhanded just chuck us a billion not even like like you say com- yeah. not even coming up with the reasons for it not even like oh it's the best of both parties just literally here's a billion quid to get you on our side the Tories are never going to be able to use those lines again and people are going to have to accept that coalitions are part of the contemporary political system and in the long run that is much better news for Labour than it is for the Tories
4: yeah I also think that this is the real like kind of killer blow that's been dealt the Tories is that their kind of punitive policies that would seem cruel if it weren't for the logic and ideologies that they kind of provide for them but like that's how they kind of sell those things to the public and as soon as you pull that rug away as soon as you pull the their own systems of logic out from underneath them and they start questioning whether or not yeah austerity is actually a kind of political decision or not whether these like we do need to live within our means what is debt blah blah all these types of things suddenly they just look like really, really nasty. And I think that's what's really coming through now is they just look kind of greasy and nasty. Yeah. But again, bad. it comes
0: back to the point that you started with. Does it matter if they, that they look nasty, that people don't like them if they are in control of all the levers of power for the foreseeable I think it massively future? Does but, but,
1: I mean, but I mean, we're probably looking at another, another election Pretty soon, because it's such an unstable government. I just personally can't see
0: that in a way that's going to happen because we do still have the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, and although that sort of didn't matter when everyone wanted an election, if the Tories continue to struggle in the polls you know we have a situation in which no one wants to be the tory leader because it's such a poison chalice the tories don't want to call an election because they could very easily lose it um and so i can't see there's going to have to be a lot of change before we get to a point where where a new election seems inevitable
1: i think it's very conceivable that a situation will come about where well, we'll have an election quite soon. You know what and, you sound like? And, you and, sound like a new Labour plotter just
0: waiting for Corbyn to die. I mean, it's the same argument of like, don't worry, he's going to fuck something up soon, and then it will all be different. And actually, it's, it doesn't always... I don't think it always works like that. I don't no, think but the anyone is, who would Corbin want to lead the Tory right party now is popular in, whereas... with this pathetic majority. I
3: think right now there's no one, like this immediate m- like, moment, no one would want to lead the Tory party. That would be a poison chalice. But I think in six months or nine months or a year, uh, Boris Johnson would probably snap your hand off for it.
0: What, in the middle of Brexit negotiations that are, by all accounts, going really badly? <laughs>
3: I th- yeah, because I think he's thinking that maybe in five or ten years' time we might have a Labour administration, and he's fiercely ambitious, and I think he's manoeuvring now.
1: I mean, that is the Tories' chronic fear. They really are afraid of a Corbyn Labour government in, like, a quite deep ideological sense. Yeah,
0: which is why I think they wouldn't call an election, because he probably would.
2: So what you've done is you've actually used this as an opportunity for you to make a statement and nobody else gets to say anything at all. You could have issued that statement, in fact, you should have issued that statement, eight days ago.
1: The grandfather fire was obviously horrific, the number of dead is still unknown and survivors are still staying in hotels. The political ineptitude as stories have come out from residents in the tower has dumbfounded everyone. I spoke to Simon Elmer from Architects for Social Housing about the disaster.
5: The residents who were so dissatisfied with the the tenant management organization, they set up their own body called the Grenfell Action Group. Since about at least May 2013, when there was an enormous power surge in the building, they have been complaining consistently to the TMO about the fire safety of their homes. There's lots of things that have been done in the maintenance of the building or the lack of maintenance, which made it into a much more dangerous place. Um, Things about um, gas pipes being not contained, not being compartmentalized. Um, about confusion over fire fire safety procedures, um, the lack of um, fire doors, all this sort of stuff. But that contributed, I think, to the spread of the fire internally. But the actual cause of the fire was the refurbishment of the building of the tower. That's part of a wider regeneration program, which is eventually going to affect pretty much every... Council estate in London, if not across the UK, certainly in London, where land prices are so high. The cladding system, which is both an insulation and a rain panel which hangs over that, which was applied to the tower, has subsequently emerged as being um, a fire trap, um, incredibly dangerous. But the fire spread across the facade of the building, up the voids which were created between the cladding and the building, which created a kind of a chimney effect and up this really flammable material. The key thing is, by applying that cladding, the fire stops, which effectively compartmentalize a fire, um, were completely bypassed. There was a fire in the building back in 2010, as there are often <laughs> in buildings across London, yeah. and they get contained within compartmentalization. The concrete, con- reinforced concrete doesn't burn, and it isn't contained in these buildings, for about an hour and a half in a single in a single flat which gives plenty of time for firefighters to come in and put it out. In this case, the cladding rendered every single fire safety measures which were designed into this building completely completely obsolete. This is why I am calling for your resignation. Not because of what
2: happened with the fire, but the sheer and ongoing incompetence that this council has shown ever since it happened.
5: The cladding that killed them was put on the tower if you like, challenge the depression of land values that comes from having social housing in the area. Mm. People aren't going to invest in the kind of developments that the council are trying to build on Silchester Estate if they're looking at a council estate next door. The appearance of council estates, near their mere presence, depresses land values. Um, Also, of course, by demolishing and redeveloping, which is what uh, developers are doing on the Silchester estate, which is in view of Grenfell Tower, that's going to give profits to developers, contractors, architects, builders, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the real, the real driving motivation behind estate regeneration, which led to the death in Grenfell mm-hmm. Tower, the profits to be gained from it.
0: Uh, we can let you in. We just need to see everyone's ID to show us you're from the press and we'll
5: escort no you public. through. And
3: the no
5: public. No public at the moment. You are allowed. To the
3: public are allowed in.
5: Until I hear instructions otherwise, the no public, public will ever. The public are in.
3: The public and press are in. Until realizes. I
5: receive other instructions. Yeah, yeah, we're too darn loud. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah the conditions which led to this fire are in place in every council and every estate in the city um, under both Tory and Labour councils. I think one of the things that's most outrageous about this terrible Grenfell fire, in terms of who's been responsible for it, is that the only people who have been arrested has been a guy who took a photo of a dead body and someone else who tried to claim back some of the money which was donated by people. Whereas the the companies that cloud it, the architects, the designers, the management teams, the, the TMO and the council all seem to be free to go around and delete every bit of evidence about their culpability in this process.
1: So that was Simon Elmer, obviously very critical of uh, housing at a lot of different levels and locating this as part of a wider housing crisis. Currently, it seems like the public inquiry is pleasing pretty much nobody with the terms being set really narrowly so who do we think we can kind of hold accountable for this
3: the problem with this is that no one person or one organization or even like one political party is really accountable and i think that a lot of people are saying that Grenville's like the hillsborough for our generation and i think that in it, it will be and i don't think we're going to have all the answers to this for like a decade maybe two you know like people are still being try, tried for hillsborough now um there's a lot of different stuff that's been thrown around there's um you know that this policy of like arms length, like tenancy management, um, organisations, people have been arrested like for not for not installing proper fire alarms in the building. There's this idea that of like austerity, like causing like huge pressure on councils to like cut costs when it comes to like refurbishing social housing. Yeah. You know, there's like this incredible like shortage of social housing, which meant that there were a lot of people in that building who maybe didn't actually live there full time. But I don't think that there's like one answer to this, like. You know, for example, people have been rightly really critical of the Tory government's response to Grenfell. It's been atrocious, but Emma Code is the Labour MP for that constituency, and she actually sat on the housing committee that looked into Grenfell's renovations in 2014. So she's not whiter than white either. It just seems like this is such a complicated clusterfuck, basically, that no one can really... Uh, Apportion blame in any one way.
1: The um, public inquiry seems set to set some very narrow parameters, like kind of a question of how did the fire start, who exactly died, and why specifically. Whereas it seems to be such a bigger question than that. Like have it, having gone to the, the area like a couple of days after and seen the protests and stuff. Um, it felt like everyone there was kind of understanding this as a question of like class, and uh, and I kind of there was a real rage against like il- elites in general, and people people w- wanted very specific answers about stuff to do with fire safety, but they were also like articulating that through. Uh, a kind of disregard and like contempt for them by elites, um, which doesn't seem like something that like a public inquiry is going to get to the heart of.
3: I think the contempt thing is like so powerful. Like there was just utter contempt displayed by the council towards the victims and the survivors and the people living in Grenville. You know, a couple of the people who died have actually been threatened with prosecution for challenging the local council on the safety of the building if that's just not the most like horrible metaphor for like heartless capitalism i don't know what it is to be honest with you
0: there's a lot of kind of hate in politics and people like to make jokes about the tories but there's a lot of tories out there who do think that they're like doing their best for society and they're just wrong about it but in this Example, every single person involved is absolutely just like, you know, it's like the worst kind of canary, whatever. It's like the furthest reaches of some canary article about how bad a Tory council could be all come to life. I mean, the cover ups, the absolute disregard for residents, the language that they use to talk about residents, the way in which they've let, you know, to save minuscule amounts of money, you know, risks hundreds and hundreds of lives and have no remorse about that and are yeah. trying to cling on to power. And uh, like you say, like not offering the right kinds of amnesty is not kind of it's just the whole thing is so on the nose that in the same way that Hillsborough, after it happened, then affected sort of 25 years of politics because it just said so much about the way you know the south viewed the north and and so much about this is gonna affect british politics for 20 30 years because it everything in it is like a kind of caricature of like the rich and 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 the uncaring tories and and kind of everything that we've been discussing in the first part of this podcast come to life in, in in this one moment
5: My first impression is that the UK's offer is below our expectations.
1: As advertised, the UK is leaving the EU, still. Before we're allowed to get the hell out of Dodge, we've got to strike a deal, a divorce settlement. We'll have a chat about how much of a shit show we think it is in a May. But first let's chat to someone who really knows how much of a shit show it is from the inside.
2: Emily Stewart. Uh, I'm a British person living in Belgium and working in the European Parliament for MEP Seb Dance, who is a London MEP for Labour, but is quite well known for being the MEP who held the sign up behind Nigel Farage saying he's lying to you.
5: All of us here say we're democrats. Well, here's a chance to prove it. What's just
2: constantly amazing to me is how different the narratives are. With this kind of renaissance of the Great Britannia spirit and we're going to go and crush them and she's going to be a very difficult woman. It just doesn't reflect the feeling over in Brussels at all. I, I'd say the, the prevailing feeling is that people are just really, really sad. A colleague of mine today was congratulating us on, um, on on Labour doing better than expected and she said, you know, finally a little bit of good news coming out of the island that i would loved so much. Um, so there's a huge amount of sadness around. But I'd say there's quite a lot of determination as well. Not not in the same way as in the UK. They want the best outcome. I mean, they don't want a damaging Brexit. Ultimately, there's a number of countries here whose economies are, are linked uh, you know, to the UK via Europe um, and businesses that are at least partly dependent on markets in the UK. But I mean, the thing is, it's partly. There's 27 other countries to trade with. So if you're fabric manufacturer in belgium and five percent of your market goes to the uk that's really unfortunate you don't want to lose five percent that's going to be a dent but it's still five percent and it can be ultimately recouped um around the rest of the market if i could sum it up in one word there's quite a lot of pity actually i think people feel quite a lot of pity towards the uk about what's been going on politically um the fact that it's a nation that a lot of people regard as very strong, um, as really one of, I suppose, the founding fathers of Europe in, in many ways. Um, and to see it go down a direction that was gone down with so much chaos, um, I think people are really pitying us and they're sad to see it. They know what their strengths are. They've got a number of really good negotiators on their side who have been negotiating as part of you know, elite EU teams for years. They know that we've cobbled ours together at, last, at the last minute. Um, they know that there's a huge amount of political turmoil going on in the UK. I think, if anything, what they're preparing for is, is not for battle, um, but they're, they're rather hoping that we're going to come to the table actually prepared for these negotiations, because at the moment it just doesn't look like we are. People are just in disbelief about the disorganisation um, that we've opened negotiations today um, with David Davis basically asking for things that have already been ruled out really early on. And I think that the EU negotiating team are quite surprised that he's coming to the table with things that are fairly obviously not going to happen. Now, I recognise that that's all part of negotiation and you've got to have a starting point. Um, But I I think that they're quite concerned really just about the lack of, of preparation on that side. While I am sure a positive agreement can be reached, I am equally clear that no deal for
4: Britain is better than a bad.
2: Whoever you speak to, um, among the British Labour MEPs, uh, among the MEPs more generally in the Parliament and the people working in the Commission, nobody can believe that anyone would be as stupid as to say that no deal is better than a bad deal. That's like saying no dinner is better than a bad dinner. Well, not if you're starving, actually. Um, and I'm afraid that that is potentially the position that we're going to be in. Now, you know... Said says this pretty often um, but we'd be really happy to be proved wrong ultimately you know I don't want to be sat over here in Belgium come what May saying I told you so I want my friends and family to have jobs Um, I want the people that I know and love in the UK to not be badly economically affected by this Um, and no deal will absolutely be the scenario where people I know will be losing jobs, will be losing income and that's not you know, scam on ring, which is something that, that my main side is accused of a lot. But that is just the economic forecast. That is the reality of stepping out of your biggest market. It's not what Europeans want either. The no-deal scenario. It's, it's really not. Of course, the big worry at the moment is we've got... Yeah, 24 months and counting, and we've already nibbled off a huge amount of that, having a spaffy election that didn't need to be called. Um, and now we've got Prime Minister going into this, and uh, mandate's weakened, he's got absolutely no clue, his negotiating team is rubbish, um, frankly. You know, they they seem like decent people, but they just haven't got the years of experience behind them that you've got people out in the EU, um, and they're outgunned, frankly. So we've got this, this tiny... Time scale. Um, and if we want any extension on that, we have to have a unanimous agreement from 27 member states on the other side to negotiate those terms. Now, I think if we start to move towards a position of some kind of single market model, then we might get there. Um, but if we don't start to shift and we're still talking about no deal scenarios, then I think when our time is up, which it will be very quickly, and it will be with issues unresolved, um, It was going to be really generous of all 27 other member states to say, yeah, let's keep the the clock ticking on this. I think that a calculation was done. And in order to discuss every EU directive that links the UK to the EU in two years, which of course we've got less than that now, they'd have to negotiate 400 directives a day, which is obviously not going to happen. So we're hoping to get the main headlines done within two years and at least have some kind of framework. And then... We're going to be kind of at the mercy again of of the 27 other member states to whether or not we can extend that deadline to really get into the detail of the different things that we need to. So, two years, definitely not enough time. I have just chaired a meeting of the cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election. Everybody just wishes that Theresa May hadn't started that clock ticking and then called a bloody election. Um, you know, it was two years, but it's two years from triggering it. We could have taken our time and triggered Article 50 whenever we felt like it. But Theresa May chose to trigger it and then have an election and bite off some of the really precious time that we have. Unfortunately, all of those cards are in her hand in terms of the timing. Um, I wanted to start that clock ticking, and, and the you can have a say in that. But I think naturally they would have preferred it, we'd have been a bit more prepared if our negotiating team was ready, if Dexu was fully staffed, had telephones, um, and if David Davis and Dexu were actually listening to the stories that are coming from the ground in the UK.
1: Okay, thanks, Emily. So do you guys think we plebs in the UK are able to, like, influence what's going on in Brussels at all? I mean, Brexit's all about taking back control, but I feel, like, very out of control about Brexit right now. I don't think we
0: even know what day of negotiations they're on or what's happening or what's on the table. I mean, one of the things about this current era of politics, and it's the same, I think, with Trump in the U.S., is like while everyone's focusing on kind of the top level, top billing, terrible things that are going on, there's actually, you know, hundreds of Tories in Europe, hundreds of Republicans in America who are doing all the kind of dismantling of the state type stuff, handing, you know, large waves of privatisation, changing laws forever that are going to have impacts that are going to be felt in 10, 15, 20 years. And we don't really know loads about it. And I think particularly in these closed door Brexit negotiations in which we no one's really sure what's an official position and what's a bit of kind of manoeuvring no yeah. one. That, no one's I mean, going like to know what themselves. this... Yeah, this seems like they don't know themselves. Everyone's saying they're incompetent.
1: No one's going to really know what's in this thing until it's happened. You can infer stuff from who's actually doing it, because you've got, like, David Davis, Liam Fox. These are the kind of people who, like, hate red tape.
0: Yeah, who are yeah. also just... in. Like, David Davis is insane person do you
1: know what I mean like it's very David Davis is quite a chatty guy whatever you think of his politics yeah he's
0: chatty but I just mean you wouldn't be able to have a normal conversation for five minutes without him saying something pretty wild
1: I I I definitely agree about with that about Liam Fox (laughs) Liam
3: Fox (laughs) he's like how is that possible really
1: really really into Brexit and thinks he's some kind of uh 2.0 Hornblower character.
3: How is that possible? Like, this is not a credible guy. This is a guy that's been caught up in, like, multiple scandals over his career.
4: I mean, I think the one thing we've got on our side that is presuming that everyone here wants to stay in the European Union Uh, I don't know, maybe there is a rogue vice Brexiteer on the podcast. Um, But I think the one thing we've maybe got on our side is the kind of just how incompetent they are. But that's the only kind of vague hope I have is that basically what is going on behind these closed doors is they're all trying to work out, like, how to get on the Wi-Fi. So actually there isn't much, like, damaging stuff happening because they don't know how to
0: that's the big gamble isn't it it's like is their incompetence going to mean that it just doesn't happen yeah or is it going to mean that it happens so catastrophically badly because i think there is a chance that, that like I'm,
4: i don't want to do that full like new european thing of like it isn't going to happen guys don't worry we can still stop brexit thing but i do think there is an argument for saying that as that kind of hard brexit contingent the liam foxes of this world as they start to look more and more incompetent as they're kind of uh facade unravels more and more. I think that more sensible kind of uh, inverted commas soft Brexit crew might start coming through a little bit more and might get their voices heard a bit.
1: advice we enjoy a big bag of cans with the lads as much as the next absolute boy <laughs> but have we reached peak corbin mania the left has a new internet vernacular. is this a welcome injection of slang into a humorless discourse or is this just annoying shit banter it's quite annoying now but,
4: yeah, <laughs> but i personally think that as a uh, force in the world it's a good thing um and i think that because for ages the kind of the right particularly the far right or aka the alt-right have really had that they've the banter card. They've really been in their suit. That's been one of the strongest things they've had. As in, like for like the whole Pepe meme thing, for example. They almost just came something... out of banter, right? Yeah, they it's came like, out. Oh, anti jokes, are just exactly. jokes. Oh wait, and, and, actually, when And the advantage of the way they've played it has always been that like whatever you say back to them they just say this kind of like obtuse slightly indecipherable joke back at you and you feel a bit like shit well i haven't really got anything to come back to that with because it's a picture of a frog and i don't really get the joke therefore i'm kind of stranded
0: now it's because you're a cuck mate it's because you're an absolute i know it's
4: massively because i'm a cuck but i can't help it (laughs) that's the way i am and i think what's good now is that we've got this absolute boy thing on our side which (laughs) does just kind of confuse people um you know referring to Corbyn with a big bag of cans is like to someone who's just like I don't know Jess Phillips or kind of your, your labour yeah, centrist the Dan they're Hodges a and like...
1: like Jane Merrick's of the world exactly like, what who is this boy
4: and they're trying to they're trying to kind of like decode it using like really like really obvious tools and this is why I think we've seen people coming out saying like it's sexist or it kind of signifies that like Corbyn isn't very good on women's rights and it's like I'm obviously not dismissing those interpretations but I also think that it's kind of like that it, this isn't really about there is no actual lads there isn't like a big group of like rugby players at the center of this who are actually chanting this stuff and like wandering around with bags of cans it's like a it's a very except online yeah except for literally a glass <laughs> but I think that there is a kind of exclusion in it there is an exclusionism in it but it's a good exclusionism which is like this is an in-joke, and it's because we're all united, and we're a community now, and we've got a really good thing, and we're hopeful, and we're having a bloody laugh at last.
0: Because it is hard to decipher for a certain generation of people, it kind of hasn't quite made it onto like Newsnight or the tabloids or whatever. Like we're all talking about it, Call- and think it did was- get
1: called the Absolute Boy on Newsnight oh did he get but only briefly and it was a bit like Evan Davis was a bit like and then it moved on
0: yeah do you know what I mean like they're not having this kind of discussion on the BBC right now because they can't Fully get their head around it or like know it do you know what I mean and I think that actually that's why it's kind of great because it is very exclusionary and the people who are part of it kind of get the gag even though the gag is in itself like quite confusing because Jeremy Corbyn is absolutely not any of those things <laughs> he probably has never had a bag of cans in his life <laughs> but it doesn't stop sort of traditional heartland Labour people supporting Labour because it hasn't sort of overtaken the main narrative yeah and so it kind of means that Corbyn can be all things to all people it's kind of like
4: saying Corbyn is the Prime Minister as well right that's the thing where like every time someone got really annoyed at that like Guido Fawkes opposed another thing going like deluded Corbynistas convinced Corbyn won election right and because they can come get back their say, heads like, around
0: that one it- so that kind of Got more traction, I think, and that had like exactly, more people yeah. in the Telegraph being like, "Oh, Corbyn is the Prime Minister, is he?" Well, I just knocked on Number Ten and I couldn't see him. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> it still
4: kind of, it still kind of came out quite well for us because we were every time you were batted down by another Greedo Fox post or a Telegraph article, you just keep going like, "Nah, he's the Prime Minister," and it was really like, yeah. you could yeah, see so, them no, getting like, delusional. "No, he's not." Can no, you see
3: he's that he's the, the Prime Minister? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think it allows like there's also this really annoying narrative that all left pe- like left people are really kind of like sanctimonious and you know like really dry and we just take everything so seriously we're just all feminazis so it's quite nice to see this like narrative spinning up which is like actually like if you're gonna basically like lower the level of political discourse, and let's just, like, fucking go with it. Yeah. The only thing that annoys me a little bit about it is that I kind of feel like now we're getting to the point where, like, Corbyn's a little bit like Boris Johnson. Like, people love him and he kind of get away with maybe underperforming or, like, dialing it in a little bit because he's the absolute boy now. You know, like, when Boris does something Boris like that, getting stuck on the zip wire, everyone loves it. And, like, when, when Jeremy Corbyn, like, don't know, like, eats Prindles or something, everybody fucking loves it. But, I I don't think it's a good idea to, like, have cults swing up around political leaders because I think it actually kind of undermines, like, us scrutinising them when it comes to doing their jobs. Like, I wasn't really a big fan of Corbyn's, like, reshuffle this week and my Twitter is, like, 100% like Labour and no one was really kicking off about it at all. And that's interesting. People are still just sharing, like, memes of Jeremy Corbyn at Glastonbury or whatever.
4: For all this is, like, shrouding, like, layers and layers of irony, there is also just a very... There is actually quite a straightforward reading of it all that is, like... He is kind of a slightly folkloric figure for young, very disenfranchised young voters who otherwise have just been basically, like, seshing and not able to afford rent and smashing hammers against bits of concrete.
1: That stuff's why it's cool, but also why it's maybe Limited. Like, it's, it's good. It's an articulation of the fact that people are, like, excited and engaged about you know, a possibility of change, which is manifested in the absolute boy, Corbyn, which is cool. But, like, the language is very sort of absolute and, as we've been saying, like, a kind of in-joke in a club. And that's all kind of fine, and I'm down for it until the point where, like, Corbyn does do something really shit. Like, and then it becomes really... It can be, like, a weapon against him. So, like, in the the Labour manifesto, uh, they wanted 10,000 more police. If you're, like... A migrant, and they wanted to like strengthen the borders as well. And if you're like a migrant, if you're black, or if you're anyone who like doesn't want to be like repressed by the state, that's really not cool. And then to have like a load of people being like, Oh the boy, the absolute boy, gonna like introduce ten 10- thousand more like brutes onto the streets it like it becomes quite uncomfortable quite quickly the one other quick thing i'd say is
0: all these discussions around you know the power of the youth vote and how young people are changing politics we're going to be talking about up at the uh, manchester international festival on saturday uh, vice is having a big event there uh, you can go to vice.com and find out more information about that and maybe even get a ticket
1: thanks angus i'm shirian you're the most corbanese we've ever had or maybe not The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. We'll be back in four weeks or so. Stay positive.